Testament. Second Samuel chapter 9. If you don't have sermon notes in the bulletin or the ushers have some in hands, if you just raise your hand, they'll hand that to you so you can follow along a little bit better. Now, this isn't, I know the balconies are usually warmer than normal, but last week and even this morning, it's a little bit nippy on the floor. Yes? When ushers, when you head back, would you close these side doors? We, I think we're getting too much draft, so that might help out here in the auditorium so you don't have that freezing point. Balcony, you'll never freeze up there. You're 20 degrees hotter than the rest of us. This morning we're going to be starting, if I can get rolling here, with uh, an idea of names that are being used quite a bit now. You know, sometimes you look and say, wow, that child got stuck with that name by parents. There's a whole different variety. These are some real names that people gave to their kids, okay? That really, they named different kids these types of things. And I'm not sure why, but here's one for you. Somebody that got named this, Jedi Knight, a poor child. Here's one, Jurassic Park, okay? Here's one for you, Batman, Ben Superman, or... How would you like to be called Bud Light? I would just change it just for the simple fact. This fella's called Crispy Bacon. <laughs> Some names go together with the job. Matthew Correspondent works as a news anchor. Okay? Or you have this, Clinical Neurology by Lord Brain. <laughs> or this one, a lawyer, sue you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then you get into weddings. Hardy Har got married. <laughs> Looney Ward got married. <laughs> or McDonald Burger got married. There's some strange names, okay, that come out. Yours might be one, mine is, okay? And it gets stated all different types of ways. We want to talk about a strange name that's found in the Bible. A character whose name is kind of strange. It's a name that, that you hear once in a great while, Mephibosheth. Okay, there's two of these guys in the Old Testament. Their name comes up this way. Getting rid of idols is what they think it comes from. Or many of the modern Hebrew scholars say that the name means no more shame. Well, that makes sense when you think of the story of the most famous Mephibosheths. Now, there's two of them. They are both related to King Saul in the Old Testament. One of them is one of his sons, one of the five sons who we don't know anything about other than they were killed by the Gibeonites in payment for, for a deed that their father had done. And so we don't know anything about this one, this one son of his that was called Mephibosheth, but we know about his grandson. King Saul had a son by the name of Jonathan who had a son that he called Mephibosheth. His story is told, most of it, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9 gives us a setting about what's happening in this guy's life, and it is a wonderful picture. Now, to get a bit of setting for it, let's think where we're at in 2 Samuel. David, in the story going through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, <clears throat> we have a lot of details about King David. We learn that King David had grown up in Israel, and David was a shepherd boy. <clears throat> As a shepherd boy, he did a lot of music. He also protected his father's sheep and took care of them. He then comes to fame when, as a shepherd boy, he comes to visit his brothers at a battlefield where Goliath is mocking and, and mimicking the different Jewish people. None of them are going to stand up against Goliath, but David let with the Spirit of the Lord goes out there. He faces Goliath. He doesn't run away from him. He runs to him in an attack mode and he drops Goliath. You all know the story that he 
drops Goliath with a stone and then he takes Goliath's own sword and takes off his head. David becomes a hero in the ranks of the Jews at that point. He is a young man, a late teen. He becomes one of the heroic characters. He starts fighting, leading groups of, of men in battle. King Saul really likes him. He's promised his daughter to him so he's going to be his legal son-in-law. And in time, David and the son of, the, of King Saul, that his name is Jonathan, the, the future kings supposedly, they become best of friends. Together they make commitments and they vow and they work hard. They lead the battle troops of Israel against the Philistines in multiple different occasions. Sometimes David alone, sometimes together, sometimes Jonathan alone. But they're growing and they're rising in rank until King Saul becomes so jealous of David's successes and popularities he forces David out of the court. And David lives in hiding with his 500 mighty men for a period of time. King Saul is trying to protect Jonathan's throne because he knows that in time he'll pass and Jonathan will be the king. But God has told him You're not going, your son's not going to succeed you. And he's resisting it. He's fighting against it. And then it comes to a point where King Saul goes into battle with Jonathan. They face a, a, a great number of people, they get beaten in battle. When they are beaten in battle, the rout begins. The Philistines push the Israelites into the hills and David comes to the rescue. David comes with his mighty men, he rallies the troops and he defeats the Philistines and he brings the tribes back together again. And in time he becomes the second king over the twelve tribes. He then, by Second Samuel, he has now been on the throne for about 15 years. 20 years by the time we come to this story. During this period of time, David has kind of rallied the nation, got them solidified. He's gotten all 12 tribes around him and he's doing really well. He's a prosperous king. He's a successful king. The Philistines, others who have been attacking them in the recent years, they've, they've kind of gone behind the scene. And David is building this powerhouse of Israel during this period of time. David's a righteous king, a good king. He's not a perfect king. He gets into trouble with his family. But there's one day during this time of his golden years that he's sitting down and if you look at 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, you get him probably thinking about all the blessings that God has given him. How he's come from a shepherd to sit upon the throne. How he's leading the nation in a time of peace now. And they are prospering and they're economically, socially doing very, very well. And he's got many blessings. And he's sitting back and he's thinking about all the blessings that God has given him. And he reflects and he says, is there somebody in Saul's household that I can show kindness to. The word kindness in the Hebrew is chesed. It's the idea of grace in the New Testament. It's the idea of loving kindness. It is showing mercy, grace, kind, you know, love to somebody who is undeserving of it. And he has this overwhelming desire to show kindness and grace to an individual who would be undeserving of it. One of his enemies, his father-in-law, who became his enemy, one of his own household. And he wants to do this and he asks. And so they, he thinks all of Saul's family are dead. He thinks that most of them are gone. He doesn't know if anybody has survived the battles and all the conflicts that have taken place since that time. And so he asks the question, is there anyone left? Does anybody in my court know if there's any blood relatives of King Saul's left? And somebody says, yeah, we know of one of the servants. His name is Ziba. We're going to get Ziba. He used to work for King Saul's household. He'll know. He knew all about their family. So they bring Ziba to before King David. And he tells David that he knows of one descendant still alive. 
He knows of a young descendant who happens to be Saul's grandson, who happens to be Jonathan's very own son, David's best friend's son. And David asks, what about this man? He tells him, he says, there's a young man, his name is Mephibosheth. He's the only surviving one that I know of at this point. And Ziba goes on and tells the story about Mephibosheth. He gives background. He tells David what he's been doing, where he's been hiding out all this time. And he goes back that 15, 20 years and reminds David, do you remember when you were in the wilderness and your father-in-law was trying to kill you and he was fighting you, chasing you down, but he was also fighting the Philistines? And he went into battle, the battle of Gibeah. And in that battle, he dies and his son Jonathan dies. You remember that? David David hasn't forgotten. He remembers all those details. He remembers when the, when the king died and the nation was in, was in disarray. He remembers when his best friend Jonathan was killed in battle, in a hopeless battle, that his dad, King Saul, had insisted that they fight. Well, the Ziba goes on, he says, well, back at the palace, when that battle took place and Saul dies and Jonathan dies and the rest of the family with him, we got word that the Philistines were coming that they had chased the troops into the hills where you found them and regathered them, but they were coming to the palace. And so we gave word that we need to flee because they'll probably kill everybody. Well, one of the nannies, the king's nannies, picked up his grandson, Mephibosheth, who was about that time around five years of age. And she's going to flee the palace to take Mephibosheth to some safe place. Where? They didn't say. Why? You know, how far away? We don't know. All we know is that as she is fleeing the palace with Mephibosheth, they fall down. She and he together, I don't know. Just the boy, I don't know. We, but we, you know, did they fall on the steps? Did they fall into a, a ravine? I don't know. It just says they fell. And when they fell, the five-year-old suffered such an injury, he became paralyzed. And he was lame from then on, both legs. Some type of injury, some back injury, whatever, that this boy is now paralyzed. Doesn't have full mobility. And what they did is the nanny, she takes him and they flee into an area called Lodabar. It's north of um, the northern part of Israel. It's in a wilderness area. Lodabar literally means land of nothingness. And so she fled there where there was nothing there, no threat Nobody would be drawn there to find him out and the boy is living there and has lived there for the last 15, 20 years. He's a young man now. He even has his own child and he's a cripple. He's lame for the most part and he's living in a man's house. The man is called Maker and this Maker is taking care of him and keeping him in secret. Nobody basically knows anything about him. Well, David wants to show kindness to Mephibosheth because he's part of the family. He's a relative. By marriage, he's a relative to David. And David says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Ziba, you give him the address and I'm sending some troops from my court to go all the way up to Lodabar, the maker's house, and they're going to come up there and they're going to tell Mephibosheth the king wants to see you. And so the troops come and they arrive at Mephibosheth's place where he's at. Can you imagine Mephibosheth answering the door and seeing the troops, what he must have thought? He's thinking to himself, here's what happens to all the relatives of the previous king. They what? They get killed. They don't go and live like in the U.S. They don't, you know, previous presidents don't go live and become famous speakers and get hundreds of thousands for a speech. Previous administrations in this time period, they're wiped out. Their kids are wiped out. Why? Because Mephibosheth is a threat to David if there's any kinds of rebellion or revolution and they want to put one of Saul's 
ancestors on the throne. That's the normal pattern. So when the troops show up, Mephibosheth, who already has problems standing, his knees must have been shaking a whole lot more because he's thinking execution. I'm going to be taken down to the king's palace and the king is going to wipe me out like the rest of my family's been wiped out. Can you imagine what he thought as they were going through this trip of several days from Lodabar, land of nothingness, down to David's court, how he must have been thinking, this is my last sunrise I'll see. This is my last sunset. Surely the king is going to kill me because of my grandfather. He's going to kill me because he doesn't want me to be a threat to his throne. Well, he comes into David's court, as you read in 2 Samuel 9, when he comes in, David greets him. And David basically says to him, if we jump into the story here in 2 Samuel 9, that it goes down and it says that uh, when Mephibosheth, oh, I want to catch you right about here. He says, David said to him in verse 7, stop fearing, literally. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and restore you all the land of Saul your father. You shall eat bread at my table continually. And he bows himself and he says, why is thy servant that you should look at me? I'm, I'm like a dead dog. I, I'm, I'm a nobody. Why would you show me this kindness? And so he goes from fear. When he hears David's kind words, he goes from fear to absolute shock and humility. David's basically saying this is a peaceful situation. I, I want to show you grace. I want to give you back all of, your, all of your family's holdings. I want to restore them to you. I want you to be at my table like one of my own sons. You can live in the palace. The palace that you used to live in, you can live here. And you have free room and reign and it's going to be there. And Mephibosheth is just shocked. He didn't expect this. This is so gracious of David. He's humbled by it. And he's basically, David repeats again, I want you to be as one of my sons. You can be adopted into my family. I'm adopted. I'm a child of the king, Mephibosheth could sing. And it's a phenomenal story. The story goes on that David provides for Mephibosheth continually. In fact, years later, a number of years later, about a dozen years later, um, you have a revolt that takes place by one of David's sons. His name is Absalom. And when Absalom revolts, Mephibosheth can't flee the palace. He's stuck there. And he ends up being, looking like he's part of the revolt, and he's not. And when David comes back at that 17 years later revolt, when David comes back, Mephibosheth says, I was, I was not with Absalom. I was with you. Please, you can take away everything. Just don't kill me. Make me as one of your servants. And David keeps him right there, restored into that place where he's eating at the king's table continually. David shows grace to Mephibosheth. It's a phenomenal story. It's a wonderful story. The key idea here is this thought, this question, why? Why did David show such grace to Mephibosheth? And it's very clear. The text says, I want to show you kindness because of my relationship with Jonathan, your dad. David and Jonathan were best of friends. David and Jonathan had packed it together that they would, they would love each other in life and in death and they would care for one another's family. And David is remembering that covenant he made with the prince of Israel that he had said to, the, to his, his best friend who was going to be the crown prince or was the crown prince and thought to be the future king. He says, you know, I, because of him, because of my commitment to him, I want to show you some kindness. I want to show you some mercies. We could sum up Mephibosheth's story very simply. Mephibosheth was in need of such grace. He needed it. 
He's in Lodabar. He's in nothingness. He's lame. He needs somebody to be gracious. He's undeserving of it. There's nothing within him. He has no money. He has nothing to get David's attention to say, you owe it to me. No, not at all. He's undeserving of it. And yet he benefits by the kindness, the love, the grace of King David. He's taken care of. His children are taken care of. His family lives. You know, Mephibosheth was very lucky to have a friend like David. Very lucky. And I bet you there's people sitting here this morning that are saying, I wish I had a royal friend just like Mephibosheth. I wish, I'm sure there's some of you sitting here saying, boy, it sure would be nice if somebody came from the White House and said, I want to show you grace and mercy because of your family. Can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a thought this morning? You are fortunate. You are luckier than Mephibosheth because you do have a royal friend who wants to show you grace. This royal friend is the best of kings. He is the best of friends. He is the one who wants to show you as more grace than David showed to Mephibosheth. There's a story that's told about a songwriter, Joseph Scriven. He grew up in Ireland, and as he grew up, he grew up in a godly home. And he was one of those that benefited from a good education. He was looking at a career, all different types of things. He found the young, the young lady of his dreams. The day before they, got, they were to get married, they're crossing this bridge. She falls off into the Han River and she drowns. He is devastated. In fact, he leaves the homeland and comes to America. He comes to Canada, actually. And he lives in Canada for a period of time. He is broken. He is beside himself with grief. And he's living in Canada, and one day as he's walking down the street, there's two men that they see him with an axe and with a saw because he's obviously been out cutting wood. And the one says to the other, hey, he looks like an industrious young man. I think I'll hire him. And the other one said, you can't hire him. What do you mean I can't hire him? If you can pay him, he won't work for you. What? Joseph Scriven had come to the point in his life that, he real, that what he wanted to do is he wanted to dedicate his life to serving other people. That was how he's getting over his grief. And so he was serving others and he would only cut wood for people who couldn't afford it. And he was helping people out. He was using what monies he had or what monies he earned to pay for food, to pay for other, other needs that people had, to provide for those individuals. And as time was going by, um, he ends up, you know, ends up meeting another young lady and the day before they get married, she contracts a fever and dies. He's gone through great sorrow. Great, great sorrow. And so he's committed his life to help people out. And he hears, a few years later, he hears that his mother is sick. She's back in Ireland. She's very sick. But he has no funds. He's given everything away. He can't get to his mother. So he writes a poem to his mother. And this poem is a poem of comfort that he had written for himself, that he sends his mom, and it's a poem that you're familiar with. What a friend we have in Jesus. And he talks about in this poem about no matter what the difficulties, no matter what the trials, no matter what the, the challenges we have, we have a friend in Jesus Christ. And he gives this out. In fact, he, when he dies a few years later by himself drowning, he ends up then never seeing this poem become such famous poem used in song and we sing it here even here in services today in this year that it is a song about the friendship of Jesus Christ. Scriven had it right. In the story of Mephibosheth and David there are parallels that I see very clearly 
that are parallels that show about the friendship between King David and the friendship that you have with the King of Heaven. You have the parallel that goes with a Mephibosheth who benefits from King David's grace to you and I who benefit from the kindness that is shown by King Jesus. Can I just highlight a few of those benefits for us this morning? To just to show you the parallels between Mephibosheth and you and I that just show us the kindness and the goodness of Jesus Christ to us. Like Mephibosheth, you and I are spiritually lame. We are individuals who are handicapped spiritually, all due to the folly of one of our ancestors. Just like in Mephibosheth's case, Saul and his folly and going in battle and jeopardizing the kingdom, his own life and his family, by getting into a battle, we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and we find that the folly of Adam and Eve has now passed down from generation to generation and it afflicts every one of us. It's called sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As a result of the sin that we possess and that we feed and we harbor, we are spiritually lame. There is nothing we can do. There is no, nothing we can, we can achieve to merit getting into heaven. We are, as Isaiah says, all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. The word literally is dung-filled rags. There we are, sin-tainted, sin-cursed. We are spiritually destitute. We have nothing to merit our way back into the palace that we were kicked out of as a human race back when the Garden of Eden was shut off. Like Mephibosheth, you and I have lost out on all the spiritual riches and royalty that were intended to be shared with man. God made the Garden of Eden. He wanted them to live there. He promised all kinds of blessings as time would go by, but what did they do? They gave it up because of their own desire to do their own thing. Lost to the human race were those riches, was that royalty, to be in that household, into that courtyard of God Almighty. And as a result, you and I stand here, we sit here today, and we have no reservations in heaven that are guaranteed us. Because if we get what we deserve, the wages of sin is death, separation from God. We don't deserve to get into heaven, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but rather the only thing that gets us into heaven is by the grace of God Almighty. It's His riches. Like Mephibosheth, we find ourselves in a spiritual wasteland. We're in our own load of bars. We're in positions where, where we are struggling, where we are in a low, we are like that, the, the individuals that, that Mephibosheth would say, he says, I am like a dead dog. Now, put it in perspective, back in Bible days, you didn't have dogs for pets. Dogs were scavengers. They were, they were the ones who were the dirtiest of animals. Nobody, you, you, if you're saying, I'm like a dog, you're, you're picking something, you know, flea-bitten, flea-bag, that you're saying, I am really, really bad. And then on top of it, a dead dog, you're roadkill. Well, he's got it right when he's saying this is the way we are. Before God Almighty, you and I, we have a stench about us. Before God Almighty, here we are, we're on Lodabar. We aren't able to make ourselves good enough to merit the king's court. We aren't sweet enough. We aren't kind enough. And some of us struggle. We struggle with greed. We struggle in our load of bars with, with anger. We struggle with gossip. We struggle with lustful thoughts. We have battles. We have difficulties. We have lonely moments. Sometimes we don't have the peace that passes all understanding. Why? Because we're in a load of bar. And we can run to this place and that place and say, I'm going to find fun here and fun there, but it doesn't last. The happiness is like you're grabbing at a, at a handful of air trying to pick up a whole handful of, of oil. It just kind of passes through. Oh yeah, for a moment you can be happy, but then 
it doesn't last. We get involved with sports and we look forward to the sports. Go to the Mecca in New York. Okay? We do those things and they satisfy for a while. For a bit. And then the season is over and our team is lost again. We're in load of bars. We're in load of bars and that they don't give us this lasting joy and peace that we crave, that we want. And some of us turn to different vices to find this happiness, this peace. Some of you have been there. You've done that. You've turned to the alcohol or the drugs or the sex or the different types of, of activity and the riches of the world. But it's Lodabar. It doesn't really satisfy. And so we need, desperately need like Mephibosheth, we need grace. We need, and it comes from the king initiating the grace. It's the grace that God would all of a sudden, like King David, say, hey, I want to show it to you. You are undeserving of it, but I want to give it to you. And like King David made the first move towards Mephibosheth, we love God because he first loved us. There is no man that seeks after God, but God seeks after us. And he comes and he shares the word through a friend, through a relative, through a parent, through a Sunday school teacher. He shares the word and the hope that says, I want to pour out my grace upon your life. And you sit there and go, I'm but a dead dog. Why would he do this to me? But he wants to give you grace. And God has made the first step by sending his son and then he sends his spirit and then he sends the word and then he sends others to you to say, I want to bestow grace upon you. I want to give it to you. Like Mephibosheth, you and I don't deserve that grace. And yet we understand it's by grace that we are saved. We haven't done anything to merit restoration to the king's favor. There's nothing we can do. Baptism doesn't do it. Church doesn't do it. Good clothes don't do it. Good looks don't do it. Money doesn't do it. Nothing we do. We're spiritually lame. We're, we're, we're individuals in Lodabar. But by grace, God reaches out to us. By grace, God says, come into my courtyard. And we realize it's only by chesed, only by loving kindness, it's only by the king's grace that we get to walk into the heavenly courtyard where he's preparing a place for us. Like Mephibosheth, you and I get this grace because of the king's commitment to another prince. David says, Mephibosheth, I want to show you kindness because of my commitment and love to your father, Jonathan, that we made years ago. Jonathan was a, was a prince of Israel. We made a pact. We made a covenant. And because of that, I am showing you grace. God the Father will show you and me grace because of his commitment and his pact with Jesus Christ. Because of his love for the Son, we are saved. How did Jesus say it in John 17? We are saved because the Father loves the Son. Isn't that an amazing thought? I don't keep myself saved. I can't. But God keeps me saved because of his commitment to his Son, Jesus Christ. And that commitment never wanes. That commitment never vanishes. That commitment never stops. So you and I can enjoy a place in heaven in that royal courtyard because of God's plan and commitment that he made with his son Jesus Christ who came and gave his life for us. Like Mephibosheth, you and I, we are, we are benefiting from all this and one day we can see the beauty of the king's court. Can you imagine how wonderful that will be? Can you imagine when we walk into heaven that we will be as one of his sons sitting at his banquet feast, that we enjoy all the riches 
I think about some of those that in this past year we have said, see you later. I think of some of our friends and loved ones from this church family that are on now in the presence of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of grace that was bestowed upon them. Because of that kindness that God said, that I love the world including you, that I sent my only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all of a sudden, they leave this life, they open their eyes, and they're walking into the king's court. The king's court where all of a sudden they see the beauty, they see the royalty. They've left Lodabar and they're in the land of the living. I think of one of our dear friends. If you caught the slide, Ann Murphy, pioneer missionary, passed away to be with the Lord. Ann was instrumental in Regeneration Reservations Ministries in Arizona, getting it started a number of years ago. She grew up here next to, next to Philadelphia. As a young girl, she knew about horses. She was raised by parents who had died. Or she was raised by grandparents because her parents died when she was a little girl. And her grandparents showered her with all kinds of kindness and grace. And she grew up there. She married a man who deserted her a few months later. And she ended up then raising her son Scott by herself. She said she turned from a life where she was kind of, you know, living and, and dealing with horses. She had to change her whole life. She went into now secretarial work, indoor work. And she says, but there was something missing, something missing. And every day to work, she passed this little church, this little church that was along the side of the road that she would take there down in, in uh, south of uh, Philly. And she says one day she decided just on a Sunday to stop in. But she told herself, they won't like me. I'm a divorced woman. I'm a single mother. They're not going to care for me. They're going to probably say, you know, I don't belong here. And she said, I came in and I felt the love of God. A few weeks later, she prayed and got saved. A period of time goes by and she's very burdened for other mothers who are raising children themselves. And God really worked in her heart. A couple years later, she ends up moving to Navajo Reservation with her and her little boy. And they start a ministry there amongst the Navajo people working with a couple other missionaries. And as they're doing that ministry, she finds out as time goes by that it's the Apache tribes that are really neglected. Because nobody wants to work with the Apache because of the harshness of that tribe, especially in San Carlos. So she moved there without any support. She moved there being convinced this was God's will. And she lives there now with her son who is in elementary school. And she begins ministries. She told us stories about ministries, how she was threatened multiple times at knife point. She told stories about how people came around her, her trailer home at night, banging on the sides, threatening her life, and she would just have no other recourse but just to pray. And she survived all that. Her son grew up, ended up going to college, coming back, helping her with the ministry, and they developed regeneration ministries. God used her in a great way. Six years ago, she started with failing health. She started with Alzheimer's. Yesterday, she's restored. She's back to where she can think clearly, move about with any limitations. Walking in the presence of Jesus Christ. Why? Not because she had done all that mission work, but as she writes, and if you look on her website, she'll say, I don't deserve anything. It's only by grace. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that has restored this godly woman to a place where now she can communicate once again. Today, she can communicate.
Today she can sing. Today she can meet the others that she has led to the Lord, other family members who went before her. She can walk and talk. She can meet other friends she made across the nation as she traveled in raising support for that ministry, which she did one day when she contacted us because her vehicle broke down an hour from here. And she called us and said, you know, I stopped by, I talked to you last week, and I don't know of anybody in, the, in this area of Lancaster and Lebanon. You were kind enough to give me an hour. Can, I, can you help me out now? And it developed a friendship that developed into a ministry that many of you have visited, many of you have been involved, your kids have gone there at some time or another. All because of grace. The grace of God that developed it. There's a story told about a Persian king who would at times dress down like a commoner just to meet with people. And the story goes that one time when he was walking through the palace and dressed down, he decided to take a flight of stairs that went down. And they went down and they went down and they went down and they went down into the lowest part of the palace. In this lowest part of the palace, there was somebody there that was called the furnace keeper. His job was to keep the furnaces going that heated up all the waters that were used in the baths throughout that palace. And the king, who's dressed like a, a pauper, sat down and started talking to this man. And the king made it his habit for the next month, just going down there every other day and visiting that man for an hour or so. And they developed a real friendship. The king decided that it was time to let him know who he really was. So that day arrives. He goes down in his royal garb and the servant, the furnace keeper sees him and just falls flat on his face and the king has him get up and they have a chat and he is surprised. He, he absolutely didn't know that it was the king. And the king says, is there anything you would want from me? Usually at this point the king expects the person to say, well can I have a new house? Can I have a new job? Can I have money put into my account? Can I get something? Can I get my own harem? Can I have something? He said, the man said, I don't want anything. And the king was, was shunned, uh, stunned. He says, you're down here. You don't see people. What do you mean you don't want anything? He says, you've already given me the very best. What do you mean? You gave me your time. You gave me your friendship. I don't want anything else. Jesus Christ offers you the greatest gift, his own love, his own friendship. With that comes the benefit of heaven. With that comes the benefit of him taking care of you. With that comes the idea that you're going to be able to stay in his heavenly court perpetually because of his grace. Just like David said, you stay here continually. God wants to do that. But here's the key. You just have to accept it. You have to accept the grace. Here's where grace goes. Grace wants to show love and kindness, but it doesn't force itself upon you. God says, I want to give you this mercy. I want to give you this kindness. I want to give you the benefit of forgiveness and lift you out of your load of bar spiritually and put you on a plateau where you are royalty. You are the, my child. You are a son of God, where you are a daughter of God. And I want to make you into a different person. And then one day have you live with me forever and ever continually. I want to provide for you. I want to care for you, but I'm not going to force you. It's your choice. I have extended my hand to you. I have offered this. I have reached out to you. I've sent my son. I've sent my spirit. I've sent this message this morning, but it's up to you. You either accept it or reject it. And what you have to do is decide, do you want such grace? Do you feel worthy of it? No, none of us are. But do you want to take this grace? Because the Bible very clearly says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. 
The Bible clearly says that he will give this grace to you, wipe away all your sins, past, present, and future, put you into that position where you're adopted into his family if you accept that grace. It's your choice. How do you do that? You simply pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask him to forgive you of your sins. You acknowledge you're a sinner. You ask him to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life the life that he has bought for you by dying, bearing, and resurrecting. The life that will give you a home in heaven for the future. A life that will give you peace and joy in this life and purpose in this life and satisfaction in this life which will only get better in the next. A life that will give you an opportunity to serve him. You accept his grace. You just take the grace. And boy, isn't it amazing. The amazing grace that God would give to us. Wow, this fellow, read his biography. Read his story. How his dad was a, was a sailor, and when he was retiring, he had it all, all planned out. John, you're going to become a sailor. I've got you a spot on a ship. You're going to become you know, a, a, a hero of some sort. You're going to end up in Parliament one day. And he's got it all planned out. But because he was attracted to some young lady in town of London... He didn't make the date and the boat that his dad had arranged for him. His dad was so angry. His dad said, well, if that's the case, if you're not going to take advantage of the things I've offered, you're going to be on your own. But I've already made arrangements for you to go on another ship. And this time you're going to be low, low made on ship. And he was. It was a terrible, terrible time. He didn't like it at all, and he was treated real low class, and he was like a slave on the ship. And as time went by, he decided that he wanted to get off this ship. He's walking through town, and it's obvious he's a sailor by the way he walks, and he runs into one of those press crews from the naval ships that would just grab young men off the streets who showed that they had some type of navy or sea ability, and they grabbed him and they put him into the Royal Navy. It was the worst two years, he says, of his life. They treated him harshly, and his father tried to get him out, and didn't work, didn't work. And he said he was just beaten down, beaten down. And finally, they made an arrangement for him to get off this ship to go to another ship that worked for, for Parliament. That ship was dealing with slaves. He started working for this fellow and dealing with slaves and, sh and the shipping trade. And in time, he ends up becoming a ship's captain. In the meantime, he is, he is at one point, he is taken for a slave and made a slave in one of those plantations here in America. And then he gets back onto the ship and he becomes his own captain of the ship. But he has turned against God. And he's turning other people against the Lord. And he's saying that, you know, his mother's prayers didn't mean anything. And then he gets a book. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis makes a tremendous impact on his life, but it doesn't last. And then he hears that one of the young men who came on board with him that was a godly young man who he corrupted, that young man died in his sin. Boy, now he's shaken to the core. And he contracts his own fever, and he almost dies out of this fever. And he recovers from it, and he is reevaluating his life. God, you've given me another chance. Why did you give me another chance? And he comes to a point where he gives his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He does marry that young lady. He does become a captain of a slave ship. And then over a period of time he realizes this is not satisfying. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And he becomes a preacher. Becomes a well-known preacher. 
One that ministers throughout the area, but you know him most famously for what? For this song, Amazing Grace. For the song that he's written, the song that tells a story that it's all about grace. It's all about amazing grace that God would share with us. Amazing grace to lift us out of our bars of a wicked life. Amazing grace that would lift us out of an emptiness. Amazing grace that would forgive us when we don't deserve to be forgiven. Amazing grace.